Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. My name is Ryan Burton. I'm a worship leader here at the church. This is Joanna Stafford. We're excited to lead you guys in worship this morning. Um, as you can see, the stage is stripped down a little more bare than normal. Uh, this service is going to feel quite a bit different, and we're excited about that. Um, the theme of this morning is that we're going to pause, and we're going to take time, create space to remember what we celebrate next week. And so this week, we remember, and next week, we celebrate. And Michael's going to come, and he's going he's to have a few different teachings throughout the morning. I'm going to start out um, continuing in our series of I Am and through the book of John. And so we're going to learn about uh, the Good Shepherd, and then he's going to lead us through some teachings throughout the Holy Week as we prepare our hearts um, to reflect and to celebrate next week. But before we do that, um, I want to sing the song that we wrote for this series again called I Am. And so if you would, let's stand together. We're going to be seated a lot this morning, but, but for this first song, let's stand and let's sing out. Thank you. 
Good morning, fellowship. Hey, my name's Michael. I serve on the community team here at Fellowship Fayetteville. And I gotta tell y'all, I love this time of year. The days are getting a little longer. It's getting a little warmer some of the time. Things are getting greener. Things are starting to bloom, which I love. My allergies don't love, but the Lord's given us Claritin. That's keeping us alive. Between Ryan and I, we're keeping the allergy pill people in business, I think. I love springtime and I love Easter. Easter is one of my favorite holidays. I love gathering here to celebrate the resurrection of our King with y'all. I can't wait till next Sunday. I love the family time that we have around Easter. It's one of my favorite times of the year. And it's here. This coming up Sunday is Easter. That means today's Palm Sunday. So here we find ourselves on Palm Sunday and we're in the fourth week of our study of the I am statements of Jesus. Jesus made these powerful I am statements, they're all recorded in the book of John, in order to illustrate the fact that he is the great I am. That the covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh, was made flesh and dwelled among his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we kicked this series off a few weeks ago. Clark taught us from John chapter six, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And Clark told us that Jesus is the only bread that can truly satisfy. And then a couple of weeks ago, Steve Graves was with us and we turned to John chapter eight and he talked about Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And Steve told us that because Jesus is the light of the world, we no longer have to live in darkness. Jesus has given us a new way to live in the light of Christ. And then last week, Garland was here in John chapter 10, and he talked about Jesus' statement, I am the door of the sheep. And Garland showed us how when Jesus is the door of the sheep, we as the sheep, God's people, we can go into the pen for protection, we can go out to the pasture for provision. That Jesus is the doorway to life abundant. And this morning, we're gonna pick it up right where we stopped last week, because this week's I am statement follows closely on the heels of Jesus saying, I am the door for the sheep. We're gonna be in John chapter 10, and in verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, we talked last week about how this idea of Israel as sheep who need a shepherd is a long-running theme through the whole Bible Garland pointed us last week to Ezekiel chapter 34, where the religious leaders of Israel are rebuked by God for being bad shepherds. And in our passage today, 600 years after that was written, Jesus stands before the religious leaders and the people gathered there, and he makes a bold statement, I am not just a shepherd, the good shepherd. Israel's been looking for a good shepherd since the time of Moses. If you're a note taker, jot down Numbers chapter 27, verses 15 through 17. What you're gonna find there is Moses himself praying and asking God to give the people of Israel a shepherd. David, of course, Israel's prototype king and Jesus' ancestor, he was a shepherd Israel's been desperately looking for a shepherd for a thousand years, and now 
Jesus steps up and says, I am that shepherd. And look what he says the good shepherd does. He lays down his life for his sheep. So I'd like for us to just begin our time this morning by looking at the main parts of this extended metaphor that Jesus has going here in John chapter 10. He's gonna talk about the hired hand, who's not the shepherd, and then he's gonna talk about the sheep, and then he's gonna talk about the role of the good shepherd. So first, the hired hand, that's in verse 12. Jesus says, the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. When things get difficult, the hired hand's not gonna risk his life. He's gonna run away because he cares about himself more than he cares about the sheep. And Jesus says the result is that the flock will be scattered. And we learned last week that a sheep on its own is very vulnerable. In contrast to the hired hand, Jesus is the good shepherd. He repeats that in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. And look what he says about the sheep. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. A shepherd can walk up to a pen where multiple flocks of sheep are mingled, and the sheep will recognize the sound of his voice, the rhythm of his call to them, and they and they alone will come out and follow him, the other sheep will stay behind. Jesus says his sheep know him the same way he knows the Father. Man, what a remarkable statement. What a closeness and intimacy of relationship. And Jesus repeats again that he lays down his life for his sheep. And then in verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Now, who are these other sheep that Jesus is talking about? Sheep of another pen. It's you and me. Unless you happen to be of Jewish descent, unless you happen to be part of the nation of Israel, you're from the other pen, as am I. It's the Gentile pen. And Jesus says, I have sheep there too. And praise the Lord that he does. If you're a follower of Jesus, and you're a Gentile, you were in that pen and you heard his voice and recognized it and followed him. And so now he says, there's one flock. It's made up of both Jews and Gentiles who heard his voice and we are now united under the kingship of Christ. And then look at the things Jesus does for this new flock. These are all pulled directly from the passage. He says the good shepherd cares for his sheep. Jesus cares about what's going on in your life today. Forget this idea of a distant God who can't be bothered with the trifling affairs of planet Earth. Jesus cares about what's going on with you. The good shepherd protects his sheep. When the wolf comes in your life, whatever that wolf is, remember that the good shepherd Jesus is there to protect you. When something frightening comes into your life, remember Ultimately, the good shepherd will rescue you, even if that means taking you to be with him. The passage tells us the good shepherd gathers his sheep. That means we're never alone. Not only do we always have the good shepherd, we have each other. He's gathered us into a flock, and so there are others around us he's given us to do life with. And then maybe best of all, he knows his sheep. He knows you and me as well as he knows his own father, he says. That means he knows all our flaws. He knows all our failures. And yet he still calls us. It also means he knows our victories. And he knows our potential. He knows us just like he and God the Father know each other. And then four times in this passage, four times he says, I Lay down my life. And that's the key for us this morning. No one took Jesus' life. Not the Jews. Not the Romans. He gave it. He laid it down in order to take it up again. Look at verse 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This is the command I received from my Father. Make no mistake, Jesus wasn't caught up in events beyond his control. He wasn't murdered. He willingly laid down his life. And as the Messiah, as the Son of God, he's the only one who could. He's the only shepherd who could give his life for his sheep. And he's also the only one who could take it back up, defeating sin and death forever. Jesus, the great I am, the God-man, he's the only one who could save us because only Jesus has the authority to lay down his life and the authority to take it back up again. And he did just that for you and for me. The good shepherd laid down his life his sheep. Lord, thank you that when we couldn't get to you, you came to us. Lord, we know that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And so, Lord, this morning, help us worship in spirit and in truth. Help us remember. Help us remember the good shepherd who loves us, who knows us intimately who protects us. Lord, help us remember the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. One gift of grace is Jesus my There is no more for heaven now to keep. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom. My steadfast love, my deep and Through this I hope, I hope is only I can sing all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hope, my shepherd will defend.
we've already mentioned today is Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of Holy Week. Holy Week is the time that we remember the last week in the earthly ministry of Jesus. The four gospel writers give about a third of their total material to just this one week in the life of Jesus. That's how significant the events of Holy Week are. Now, there aren't very many events in the life of Christ that all four gospel writers highlight but the triumphal entry is one. The day of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as he prepared for the Passover. Let's pick it up in John chapter 12. John writes this, the next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. The crowds that were in Jerusalem that day were there for the Passover. This was the Sunday before Passover. That's today. You know, some of the crowds, they had probably traveled down from Galilee where Jesus did most of his ministry. Many of them had no doubt heard him speak and even seen him do miracles. And and there were probably others who had come from various areas who were hoping to catch a glimpse of him, hoping to hear him speak for the first time. And as they gathered, They took their palm branches, which is why we call it Palm Sunday, the palm branch being a symbol of the nation of Israel, and they waved their palm branches and they cried, Hosanna, which means deliver us, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's from Psalm 118. It's a reference to the Messiah. And then they add, blessed is the king of Israel. These people knew that the true king, Jesus was coming into his city, Jerusalem. He was fulfilling scores of prophecies that had been written hundreds of years earlier that described this day in great detail right down to the exact date. But none of them, even as they praised Jesus rightly as the true king, 
could have known that the good shepherd was about to lay down his life for his sheep. None of them could have anticipated that the enthronement of this king would come through death on a cross. That was Sunday. He spent the night in nearby Bethany, and then on Monday, he returned to Jerusalem, and he went to the temple. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Every time Jesus goes to the temple, that's the presence of God entering the temple. As far as the biblical record is concerned, God withdrew his presence from the temple in Ezekiel chapter 10. That's about 600 years before Jesus. And there's no indication in scripture that the presence of God ever returned there until Joseph and Mary took their eight-day-old baby to the temple to be circumcised. And so every time Jesus goes into the temple, it's significant because that's the presence of God himself returning to that place. And during Holy Week on Monday, Jesus went to the temple only to find the court of the Gentiles clogged with merchants selling things to those who had come to worship. Here's how Luke describes it. He says, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, Jesus said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus temporarily returned the temple to its intended purpose. And as he taught there on Tuesday and Wednesday, the blind and the lame came to be healed and the ire of the religious leaders continued to grow as people flocked to him. Luke continues, every day he was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they couldn't find any way to do it because the people, all the people, hung on his words. That was Tuesday and Wednesday. And then on Thursday, Jesus told his disciples to make preparations for the Passover meal. The Passover meal had been celebrated since the time of Moses. About 1,200 years, the Israelites had eaten this meal together. Jesus said, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. The good shepherd knew that he was about to lay down his life for his sheep. And at that Passover meal, we call it the Lord's Supper. Jesus took those elements of bread and wine that they had been using for generations to remember how God redeemed them out of slavery in Israel, and he showed them how those elements had always been pointing to him all along. And so this morning, we're gonna do exactly what Jesus told us to do. We're gonna take the bread, we're gonna take the juice, and we're gonna remember so in just a moment, as the ushers come forward and begin to distribute the communion elements, if you're here this morning and, and you're visiting with us, you wouldn't say that you're a follower of Jesus, but you're just here checking out this whole Christianity thing. Maybe you came with a friend. We're so glad you're here. I'm gonna suggest as those elements come by, you just pass those on. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to take that cup. Remember the bread's on the bottom, the juice is on the top. And I want you to just hold on to it. And I want you to look at the bread, look at the juice, and remember, remember that they always pointed to Jesus, the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. You are a savior and you 
Take my time here on this earth. Let it glorify all that you are. For I am nothing. I am nothing without. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So church, let's make it a practice to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. So where you're seated right now, let's take about 60 seconds or so. And let's just pray and let's come before the Lord. Let's confess our sins. And let's ask him for forgiveness this morning. I believe that it's, it's good for us to acknowledge that sin, to be reminded of it, to feel the weight of that sin. But it's better for us to remember that we have an assurance of pardon through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. First John 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So the sins that we just confessed and we asked for forgiveness are cast as far as the east is from the west. They're completely forgotten because they've been paid for on the cross. And so we can rest in that this morning. And as Michael comes back up and leads us into partaking of communion, let us be reminded of that even more. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Well, after the Passover meal, Jesus began to teach his disciples many things. We call this the upper room discourse. It begins in John chapter 14. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna see another I am statement that comes from the upper room discourse. But at some point in the evening, they left the upper room, Jesus and his disciples with him, and they went to a familiar spot, a garden on the Mount of Olives. Let's pick it back up in Luke. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. The cup Jesus refers to there is the cup of God's wrath. Jesus knew what lay before him, and he agonized in prayer in that garden. Luke goes on to tell us that sweat fell from Jesus like great drops of blood. 
He was so anguished by what he was facing that God sent an angel to strengthen him. And as the disciples slept, Jesus prayed. He refocused himself on the mission that he had come into the world to complete, and he aligned his will with that of the Father. But the quiet of that garden was soon broken by the sound of a band of soldiers approaching. Let's go back to John and pick it up in chapter 18. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said, and Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I want us to notice what we have in bold. Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. He was in control of the entire situation. And one thing I wanna make sure we see in this short little passage here, especially in the context of our current teaching series, is what Jesus says in verse five. When they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. And our English translators have added a word to make it read more smoothly, but what he says in the original Greek is ego a me, I am. And when Jesus says those words, I am, those who have come to arrest him fall to the ground. Let that sink in. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has made these statements, the very statements we're studying in our teaching series, that he is the great I am. And when he says that in the garden, his opponents fall to the ground. Now, if they fell down at a spoken word, do you really think they could overpower him? Do you really think they could make him do anything he's not willing to do? Of course not. Jesus remained in control even as they arrested him and took him to a series of trials First for the religious trials, there were three religious trials that even by their own rules were all illegal. According to their own rules of how trials were to be conducted, these religious trials were illegal in at least 12 different ways. But the religious leaders knew that they couldn't hand out capital punishment. For that, they would need the Romans. And killing Jesus was their ultimate goal. So they went to the Roman authorities where he had three more criminal trials, first before Pilate, the governor of Judea. Pilate sent him to Herod, another Roman official. Herod sent him back to Pilate, and neither of them could find any reason to punish Jesus. In fact, Pilate said he couldn't even find the basis for a charge against Jesus. And yet the crowd gathered there in Jerusalem, whipped into a frenzy by the religious leaders, called out, crucify him. The good shepherd was about to lay down his life for his sheep. How deep the Father's love How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And how great the pain of His face away 
Pilate thought that maybe he could have Jesus flogged, and then when the people saw his battered body, they would relent, and he could set him free. So Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. A Roman flogging was much more than simply being whipped. The Romans were experts at administering painful punishment. In fact, many subjected to a Roman flogging died from it. And these soldiers... In their contempt for the Jews, they added another layer of humiliation as they mocked him and slapped him. And I want us to notice the symbolism of the crown of thorns. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, thorns are mentioned as an effect of the fall, a sign of sin. Our king, Jesus, was crowned with the effects of sin. And yet, through it all, the good shepherd remained in control. In fact, Jesus was so in control 
that Pilate became frustrated with him. Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. The good shepherd had the authority to lay down his life, and that's exactly what he intended to do. So finally, Pilate put an end to this charade of a trial, and he handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, the two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. The gospel writers are all notably brief in their description of the crucifixion. I think it's because their original readers were all too familiar with the gruesome spectacle of a man being nailed to a wooden beam and left to die an agonizing death. In our modern English language, the word that we use to mean as painful as possible is excruciating. It's from the Latin, ex, which means out of, and crucia, which means cross. Crucifixion was simply the most painful means of execution ever devised, and anyone who witnessed one would never forget it. And yet even this wasn't the greatest agony Jesus would face as he would bear the sins of the world in that moment. See, he went to the cross in my place and in your place. And on that cross, he bore the wrath of God that we all deserved. That's what our forgiveness cost. Everything See, for God himself to be both just and the justifier, for him to maintain his justice while declaring me or you righteous, the only way he could do that was to pay the price for us himself. And when Jesus had accomplished that work, the work he had come into the world to do, his final words were, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. In the original Greek is just one word. And it carries the idea that it is finished and it will forever be finished. The law had been fulfilled. And the work of atoning for our sins was complete. And notice that Jesus is still fully in control as he gives up his spirit. He commits his spirit into the loving hands of his father. And so this week, we're called to remember. To remember that Jesus was a real man and that the cross was a real cross. The nails were real the pain was real. And the victory, the victory he won on our behalf, the victory over sin and death, the victory was real as well. Because the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep.
Oh. 